Okay, I want to start off this morning with a question for you to consider. This is a rhetorical question. The question is, what is your attitude toward prayer? Um, this is an important issue for every Christian to consider and come to a conclusion on. What is your attitude about prayer? The first thing you want to do to answer that question is get real and think, well, what is my attitude toward prayer? Uh, is it, do I have a positive attitude toward prayer? Do I think it's good? Do I look forward to prayer? Do I enjoy prayer? Is, it, is prayer life-giving? Or do I have more of a negative attitude toward prayer and that I kind of dread it? It feels boring. It feels like work. What is your attitude toward prayer? Uh, I met these two ladies yesterday that they were on a trip up the East Coast. They were spending two weeks traveling through cities on the East Coast praying. And they were from Oregon. Did you guys know Oregon is a state in America? Uh, they were from Oregon and they flew from Oregon to Maine and are taking Amtrak all the way down the East Coast. And they're doing that for two weeks. So they were calling, they called churches to um, see if they could stay at churches because they didn't want to pay for hotels for two weeks. So we are the only church in Philadelphia that was return their phone call by the way so they ended up staying here but I picked them up at 30th Street Station yesterday and I picked them up at 9:30. by 10 o'clock they were at a prayer meeting and they said well we'll call you when we're ready to be picked up at 3:30, I picked them up from that prayer meeting five and a half hours I brought them up here they stayed in our offices they took a nap and then they came to our prayer meeting last night at 7 yeah. till 9 approximately and then they got up at 5 o'clock this morning to get back on a train to go to a prayer meeting in Delaware. And I'm like, dang. Well, they're all retired, so maybe that has something to do with it. But these ladies spent five and, a, five and a half hours in a prayer meeting, took a nap, and went to a second prayer meeting. And participated fully. So as I'm considering you know, my attitude about prayer, these ladies kind of challenge me a little bit. Now, I don't want us to think about prayer in terms of hours and minutes and meetings. Because when we do that, inevitably, we never measure up. As a, as a college student that was preparing to be a pastor, I remember reading a book called Power Through Prayer by E.M. Bounds. It's a very good book. I recommend you read it. But it was written during the Civil War, and things were very different. So the guy that wrote Power Through Prayer said something like, if you don't pray four hours a day, you're not qualified to be a pastor. And I was just like, there's no, there's no way I'm going to live up to this. And uh, he talked about, you know, getting up and praying for two hours before the sun came up. And I was like, but you don't live in a dorm. I live in a dorm. And then, you know... I, all these really, I don't know, all these old spiritual books that you guys read, you know, most of them are written by people whose kids have become adults by now. Uh, almost none of them are written when they have young kids in the house. But uh, I don't want to think about prayer in terms of hours and meetings. I want to think about prayer in terms of it being a response to God. That it is, is it the first response of your heart when God does something or when you observe something to pray? For instance, for many of us, our first response when something happens is to complain. Or our first response might be to get anxious or be full of fear. Sometimes our first response when something happens is to take matters into our own hands and try to control the situation. 
What I would like to see us move toward as a church is that our first response is to pray. So if we see something good or something bad, we immediately respond in prayer. Not complaint, not accusation, not worry, not control, but prayer. Does that make sense? Uh, if you apply this in your devotional life with Jesus, you will find that it transforms your time with Jesus. Here's an illustration or an example. If you, liked, if you read the Bible, if you spend some time every day reading the Bible, you might respond by what you're reading with underlining it or highlighting it. Maybe you pull out your journal and write some thoughts based on that, both of which are good things. Keep doing those things. But I want to encourage you, the Bible is the best prayer book that's ever been compiled. Let the Bible inform your prayer life. So when you're reading something and you go to underline it, don't forget to pray it too. Does that make sense? You read something, you're like, oh, if it's good enough to underline, it's good enough to pray. If it's good enough to write about, it's good enough to pray about. Does that make sense? You know, as we're worshiping, whether that's at home or here at church, let prayer be a part of that. We're not limited by the words on the screen. The words on the screen prompt us, and then we make it our own. We're not limited by the words on the screen. So prayer should be a response and our attitude toward prayer, what I would like to get toward today is that we have a positive attitude, attitude toward prayer. There's a pastor in the late 1800s, early 1900s named R.A. Torrey, who shares this testimony about how his attitude toward prayer changed. His original attitude toward prayer was, how long must I pray? How long do I have to pray to satisfy whatever obligation that I perceive that I have to pray? I don't know what his conclusion was. But that was his first attitude. How much time must I spend in prayer? As he matured and became more like Jesus, his attitude became, how much time may I spend in prayer without neglecting the other privileges and duties of life? So instead of, how long do I have to pray? His attitude became, how long can I pray without neglecting my kids? or without neglecting my job or my family or whatever other thing. That's such a shift in thinking, isn't it? I mean, anyone that you've ever met that has grown in their prayer life probably has a story of where their attitude about prayer changed. Something happened to shift it. Later this week, I'm going to share this in our church Facebook group, if you're part of that. I'm going to share a video from a pastor named Fred Hartley, who shares his story of how he was a hard-working pastor who worked hard and almost had a heart attack. He actually had heart fibrillation and sent him to the hospital. And that's when God told him, you are working too hard and praying too little. And that was his turning point to where he became a pastor that prays. Uh, but anyone that's grown in their prayer life has had adjustments made to their attitude about prayer. And I hope today we have some adjustments made. Um, so, really quickly, we're going to cover three attitudes about prayer. First, we're going to look at the wrong attitude toward prayer. Secondly, we're going to look at the right attitude toward prayer. And then third, we're going to look at God's attitude toward prayer. All of these are in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, and we're going to jump into Matthew 7 today and look at these three segments of the Sermon on the Mount that relate to prayer. So, Matthew 6 uh, verses 5 through 8, we're going to go through this in chunks here. Jesus, again, during the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about things like spiritual disciplines. Last week we did giving, 
Today we'll do prayer. Next week we'll do fasting. Make sure you come to church hungry next week, okay? Jesus says this, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. There, there is nothing that Jesus taught about prayer that precedes this statement behind me. This is the first thing he taught about prayer in any of the Gospels. Um, this is a particularly helpful passage, I think, for us as a church. I remember in the early days of our church, the first two years, 2009, 2010, we, when we were trying to become a praying church, there was a lie that we had to battle, and the lie was this. All prayer is good prayer. Well, apparently not. <laughs> it isn't, aren't the prophets full of stories where God is saying, your prayers are like a stench in my nostrils. All prayer is good prayer. Jesus comes on the scene and says, don't pray like the hypocrites and don't pray like the pagans. All prayer is good prayer. Jesus shares a parable about a, a self-righteous Pharisee who stands up before God and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this person or that person. Guys, not all prayer is good prayer. Jesus, uh, sorry, the disciples in Luke 11 came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Romans 8 says, we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Holy Spirit helps us. The first thing we need to understand about prayer is that we are not naturally gifted in this area. This is an area where we need Jesus to teach us, which is why the disciples asked in Luke 11, Lord, teach us to pray. It's the only thing they ever asked Jesus to teach them. There is no Lord Jesus to preach, no Lord Jesus to help us to balance a budget. There's no Lord Jesus help us uh, to cast out demons. It's Lord Jesus teaches to pray. And if we don't get to that point as a group and as, an, as individuals, we won't learn to pray. So Jesus' first teaching on prayer is how not to do it. And he picks on everybody. Mostly in the Bible, uh, ethnic groups and racial groups are broken into two categories. There's the Jewish people, and then there's everybody else. Okay? The word for everybody else is Gentiles. Okay? Does that make sense? So if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile in the Bible. Does that make sense? Which is most of us right now. So, uh, Jesus says this. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen. Okay, who's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about religious leaders of the Jewish people. He says they go into the synagogue. So these are essentially what we know as Pharisees and Sadducees. He is saying this to a primarily Jewish audience. So he's saying, all the prayer you've ever seen, don't do that. What you're used to seeing when you go to your house to worship, what you're used to observing from religious leaders and hypocritical people and stuff like that, 
Don't do that. This would have been a little bit scandalous to his primarily Jewish audience to be told, what you've been seeing so far, do not replicate. Which then leaves just the prayers of the pagan Gentiles. And Jesus says, yeah, don't pray like them either. Essentially, they had two categories for prayer, Jewish prayer and pagan prayer. And Jesus says, I want none of that. I'm going to open up an entirely new way to pray, and we're going to get to the Lord's Prayer in a minute. But Jesus says, essentially, nothing we're seeing satisfies me. So I'm going to teach you a new way to pray. Now, the hypocrites were praying so that they would be seen by men or seen by people. They were doing this, essentially, to get the approval of other people. They were praying in a way to get other people's approval. And then the Gentiles, who had many gods uh, and were polytheistic, he says, when you're praying in verse 7, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So the idea behind a prayer of a Gentile person was, if I can make this long enough, loud enough, and address as many as the many gods that there are, someone will hear it and answer it, okay? Really quickly, let me just look at these notes uh, from the various uh, Bible study Bibles and commentaries. The Cultural Background Study Bible says, Gentiles sometimes piled up as many names for the deities they invoked as often appealed to, and often appealed to deities' obligations to reward the practitioner's sacrifices and the like. So they would be like, Come on, you owe me. I did this sacrifice. They used long lists of the names of their gods in their prayers, hoping that by constantly repeating them, they would call on the name of the God that could help them. So these Gentiles believed in multiple gods. So if I just sling enough names out there, I'll get one. You know what I mean? Like it, it's like throwing darts and hoping that one of them hits. So they would name this God and that God and this God and that God and hopefully they would get the attention of a God. So while the hypocrites are praying to get the approval of other people, the Gentiles are praying to get the attention of their God, if that makes sense. And when Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites and don't pray like the Gentiles, he's essentially saying, you don't need other people's approval and you already have God's attention. And if you know that, your prayer life will be totally transformed. You don't have to pray to get other people's approval. And you don't have to beg God for his attention. You have his attention. If you're a son or a daughter of God in Jesus Christ, you have his attention. He's listening. You don't need to wake him up, beg him, convince him, cajole him, manipulate him. Just commune with him. And... Frankly, you can't manipulate, I don't know if you guys know this, you can't manipulate God. Because in order to manipulate someone, you have to have something they need. You don't have anything he needs. I remember as a teenager, Lord, if you help me with this test, I'll serve you my whole life. Little did I know, he's like, well, you're going to do that anyway. C minus. You didn't study, dude. Um... So here's the wrong attitude about prayer. If you're praying to get other people's approval or praying to try to get God's attention, 
That's a wrong attitude. Because you don't need other people's approval, and you have God's attention. Does that make sense? So that's the wrong attitude, and that, that's how Jesus corrects that. Now, Jesus goes on to, as I said earlier, offer a new way to pray that does not fit into the hypocritical model or the Gentile model. He teaches them what we have often called either the Lord's Prayer, or some might have grown up calling it the Our Father. This is a, uh, such a powerful prayer that it has been... Uh, it's still used regularly by millions, if not billions, of people this very day. So you're probably familiar with this. So I'll just read this. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So this prayer has, I believe, six different good attitudes in it. So if you want to know what, what should my attitude toward prayer be like, this prayer has, in my, by my count, six things that we need to learn. Now, the Lord's Prayer has been chopped up and organized and categorized so many different ways. I'm not telling you the only way to understand it. I'm, this is what we're going to do today. Um, it's such a meaty prayer. You can dissect it so many different ways, but this is what we're going to do today. So first, right attitude about prayer, verse 9, intimacy. He addresses God as our Father. That's intimacy. Uh, there's, there's not a sense of distance or separation between Jesus and the Father. He refers to God as his Father. Now, Jesus was not the first person, the t not the first teacher to address God as Father. That was common. But the word he used, Abba, was unique because Abba is father in the sense of a daddy father. You know, um, daddy, closeness, intimacy, trust. And Jesus also starts by making this plural and he says, our father. Not my father, our father. So this is a corporate prayer. Jesus has in mind other people as he's praying this and he's addressing our father. So, First attitude is intimacy. The second attitude in verse 9 is reverence. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed just means holy. We don't really use it much anymore, but hallowed means holy. Jesus is saying that God's name is holy, and he is demonstrating reverence to his Father when he says this. Jesus, so let me stop right here because that first line could be, we could spend all day just on that. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name, is a combination of both intimacy and reverence. And intimacy and reverence are two foundational principles that are necessary to maintain not just your relationship with God, but your relationship with other people. If you have reverence for God, but no intimacy, it will turn into dead, dry religion very quickly. If you have intimacy with God, but no reverence, you're going to drift into familiarity. And I want to talk a moment about familiarity. See, God does not invite us into familiarity. He invites us into intimacy. Um, if, you've ever, if you've ever encountered a person who gets a little too familiar, do you know what I'm talking about? A little too familiar, like a little too chummy. 
it's, it's a, in a way, it's a dishonorable thing. Uh, here's an example. I've told this story 13 times. So this will be the 14th time you hear it. I had a professor in college. His name was Dr. Ronald Walborn. Okay. I was raised to be respectful, so I always called him Dr. Walborn, Dr. Walborn, or Professor Walborn. But he would always tell his students, you can call me Ron, you can call me Ron. And I just resisted that. So for the whole first year, my freshman year, I just resisted that. And was, he'd say, Jim, you can call me Ron. I'm like, okay, Dr. Walborn. I just, I wasn't going there. I, I knew that if I called my professor Ron, somehow my dad would know, and he would whoop me. So I called him Dr. Walborn. Finally, my, uh, my sophomore year, I broke down and I started calling him Ron. And every, you know, all the students would call him Ron because he was approachable and likable and and stuff like that. So he was inviting us into intimacy. Well, I somehow slipped from intimacy into familiarity. You've heard this story, Gene, I'm sure. Uh, when one day he threw a pop quiz on us, and in front of the whole class, I called him a jerk. And he stopped and yelled at me in front of everyone. I was like, oh, Ron, how can you yell at me? He, oh my goodness, it was one, he embarrassed me so bad. He was all sarcastic and stuff. And he basically was like, you've crossed the line here. You can call me Ron, you can't call me jerk. So here's what I did. He invited me into intimacy, but it was not held in check through reverence. So I drifted into familiarity. Does that make sense? Here's how we do that with God. What's up, big guy? That's familiarity. You know what I mean? Hey, the man upstairs. That's familiarity. That's not reverence. Here's some good examples of reverence that we have in our own church. I love when Val starts her prayers off with, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Father, Jesus, and sweet Holy Spirit. Right, Val? Okay. To me, that's intimacy and reverence. I love how Abby starts her prayers off addressing King Jesus. Hello, King Jesus. <laughs> oh, I love doing impressions of Abby. Um, those are good examples of reverence and intimacy without drifting into familiarity. Does that make sense? And if I can just be the pastor for a minute... I think sometimes as a church, we have a familiarity problem. We get a little too chummy and forget who we're dealing with. Because we'll be in the midst of a heavy moment with God. And I don't know, it's like we lose focus and we just got to like refresh our coffee or answer the phone and church. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? I, let's, let's. Get back to where reverence is a part of our congregational life and our personal life. Okay, let me move on. Third attitude that's uh, in the Lord's Prayer is a desire for heaven to come to earth. When he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's Jesus' desire that he's demonstrating as an example to us that what is true of heaven can be true of earth if we pray that. You know, in heaven, you know, in heaven there's no racism. In heaven there's no hate. In heaven, there's no classism. So that's our starting point, and we say, Lord, 
uh, your will be done on earth as it is up there. Bring that down. Now, while that's all going to fully be culminated when Jesus returns, we can experience that now. We can call that stuff down and uh, expect that and live that out now. Uh, the final three I'll just summarize really quickly are dependence, repentance, and deliverance. So when Jesus teaches them to pray, give us our daily bread, that is kind of an all-inclusive prayer for God's provision in every area of life. It is both our material needs, like literal bread, food and clothing, money, that kind of stuff, as well as spiritual nourishment, because man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, right? So when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we are praying both for our material needs, but also for our spiritual needs. So that's a dependence attitude. There's also confession and repentance. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. It is very hard for some people to swallow the fact that we have a debt to God. That God is a holy God and that we've offended him. And so we start off with a debt that we cannot repay. Therefore, we have a need for Jesus to repay our debt. If you don't think you have a debt to God, you, you, the whole back half of the Lord's Prayer does not apply to you, does not make sense to you. But we have a debt to God. Thankfully, Jesus pays the debt and alleviates the debt on our behalf. Uh, we don't need, you know, I think one of the most confusing things in the world is a Christian who walks around feeling unforgiven. <laughs> Though you are forgiven. And so accepting that and acknowledging that is significant for following Jesus effectively. Finally, deliverance. Deliver us uh, from evil. You know, don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Um, you know, you and I are not very good at delivering ourselves from evil. We deliver ourselves into evil sometimes, but, but rarely from evil. We actually need God to help us. Jesus, we need you to come in from the outside and deliver us from evil. Uh, lead us not into temptation is another way of saying, Lord, I don't even want things to be appealing. Tempt I don't want sin to even be appealing to me. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we all have certain sins that appeal to us more than others. And you, you might see someone else's life and like, I don't even know what the draw of that is, but in your life it's something else. So there are certain sins that are attractive to me and then other sins that aren't attractive to me. Well, it's the attraction to sin that we're dealing with when it says, lead us not into temptation. It's like, Lord, make sin not even attractive to me. That there's not even a draw or an appeal. So that's the right attitude. The Lord's Prayer demonstrates the right attitude toward prayer. Finally, we're going to look at God's attitude toward prayer. In Matthew 7... Uh, so we have jumped a little bit ahead because we still have a portion of fasting we're going to talk about next week. But in Matthew 7, Jesus picks prayer back up and he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. To him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake. Will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So, we'll just break this down into two parts. The first will be the ask, seek, knock part. Jesus says, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock 
and the door will be open to you. Now, sometimes people will teach that this is a progression in prayer. You start with asking, and then when things get a little more intense, you move to seeking. And then when things are even more intense, you go from seeking to knocking. I don't know that that's necessarily how Jesus is structuring this. I just think he's saying the same thing three different ways. It's like if I tell my kids, like, well, give it your best shot. Try your hardest. Break a leg. That's not a progression. It's just me saying the same thing three different times, right? So Jesus is saying, hey, if you ask, you'll receive. And James put it this way. Some of you don't receive because you've never asked. There's a lot of prayers we don't have the, for, the foresight or the awareness to even pray. Which goes back to that idea of using prayer as a response. There are things in our lives where we're not seeing breakthrough because we're not asking. So if prayer becomes the first response of our heart, we will pray through those areas where we need God to step in. Seeking, you know, when you're looking for God to show up, you have to be persistent, which is really the, the moral of all three of these. Be persistent in your praying. This morning, I, literally this morning, I was looking for a key. And I looked in this one spot where it was supposed to be and it wasn't there. And I was, like, I was like already upset. I was about to text every person that ever took a key from me. Like, this is, all, this is your fault. I looked a second time. Oh, this person's supposed to put this key here. The key's not even there. The th I looked the third time. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> uh, listen, the key, unless the little fairy put it there, that key was there the whole time. I just had to keep seeking. Man, I was about to blow up a relationship over this key. Um, but it was there, and I kept seeking, and eventually I found it. Sometimes stuff is right under your nose, and I'm not talking now, so that was a metaphor, all right? Let me get to the spiritual. Sometimes stuff is right under your nose. God has placed stuff right in your path. If you just would keep seeking, you would eventually find it. And then finally, knocking. Um, if you've ever showed up to someone's door, and just stood there waiting for them to know that you're present. It doesn't, you might stand there for hours, right? When you arrive at someone's house, what are you supposed to do? Knock on the door, ring the doorbell, or nowadays, send them a text or something. We have this neighbor across the street that has visitors frequently, and they sometimes don't knock the door, and it takes 20 minutes. I don't know if they look out the window and realize their guests are there. I don't know. Maybe they do text, I don't know, but they'll stand there for all this time. When we're praying, we want to treat it like we're knocking on God's door. Like, engage it. Don't just stand here passively waiting for God to do something, but actually use your mouth. Speak. Pray. Uh, participate in what God is doing on the earth. So that's asking and seeking and knocking. Um, you know, all of the, the moral of all of those is be persistent. Now, this last thing that he taught, I love that he used this uh, parenting illustration. So if you are a parent or a grandparent, or even if you've just ever watched a kid, okay, this, you'll probably understand that. What man, okay, so what father or mother is there among you who, when your child asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Is any of you in the habit of when your kids ask for a snack, give them some gravel? It's ridiculous sounding, isn't it? My kids are constantly asking for snacks. Can I, can I get some Cheez-Its? Can I get this? Can I get this? Here's some rocks. 
If I did that, what kind of parent would I be, right? And then Jesus goes on to say, well, what if your kids ask you for some fish? Would you give them a snake? Well, of course not. He's making this kind of like hilarious point that like, you know, even you guys who are just okay parents realize how ridiculous this is. And if God being a perfect parent is better than you, how much more would he not give you bad things when you ask for good things? Does that make sense? I mean, you think you're a good parent? God's better. Even, Jesus was even harsher than I am because he says, if you then being evil, I just said you're okay. Jesus said you're evil. All right. If you then being evil know how to give, if you, if even we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does God know how to give us good gifts, right? So stop being afraid to pray because he might drop the foot on you, you know? Stop, here's what God, what Jesus is really telling us. It's very simple. God is good. When you pray, you're not interrupting an angry, distracted parent, which is often how people feel like prayer is. It's like, Oh, dad's watching the game. I don't want to interrupt him, but I really need this. So you timidly, fearfully interrupt the angry father or mother to get what you need after wringing your hands. And Jesus is saying, yeah, God's a better parent than that. You're not interrupting an angry parent when you pray. You're actually having a conversation with the God that created you for the purpose of conversations. You're fulfilling your purpose in a way when you pray. I want to make sure that we understand that God is good because uh, whatever we believe about God, whatever comes to mind when we think about God is one of the most important things about us, A.W. Tozer said. And A.W. Tozer goes on to say this. This is from the, the book, The Attributes of God. This is the... What a. W., how A.W. Tozer describes God's goodness. He says, The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward humankind. So Tozer is saying that God is predisposed. He, his, his general tendency is kindness. Sometimes we think God is usually angry, but sometimes we catch him in a good mood. What I'm telling you is that God is usually happy, but sometimes he has to step in and deal with our sin. But he, he is generally kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy. So he is opposite of me in that if you're going through something difficult, Jesus is the first person by your side shedding a tear. He's not the person that's like, huh. You did this to yourself. That's me. I'm the first person to say that. All right. God, is un, his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings, that's humans, is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. Did you know it's not a sin to be happy? <laughs> I feel like some of us grew up in churches where we felt like it's a sin to be happy. Um... God created us because he felt good in his heart and he redeemed us for the same reason. God created us from an overflow of 
goodness. I've actually heard it taught that God created humankind because he was lonely. Listen, God's never lonely. All right? God didn't create you and I because of something he was missing. God created you and I because of goodness overflowing out of him. He had to share it. Not only did he create us with goodness in his heart, but he saves us because of goodness. So God is good. And if I was going to summarize what's on the screen in a very simple way, this is how I would say it. God is in a good mood, guys. He's in a good mood. I, I know we picture him as angry and grumpy and like maybe sometimes we catch him in a good mood but he is in a good mood he's friendly that's, when we say god is good that's really what we're referring to his tendency is happiness joy blessedness kindness that's what he's like christians on the other hand we're often grumpy there are two different ways I think that we can respond to this today, and I want to I, I want to invite you to respond in two different ways. Um, one is repentance, and the other is receiving God's empowerment. I told you about this; these two older ladies that visited us yesterday, and I've just been thinking. You know, we had a we have staff meeting on Wednesday morning, and our staff meeting turned into a prayer meeting. And we ended up spending a significant amount of time praying. And we had an uh, elder meeting Thursday night that turned into a prayer meeting. And then uh, Saturday night, last night, we had a prayer meeting. And then tonight our worship team is going to be at Fifth and Market leading worship for a prayer meeting. So this has kind of been on my mind all week. And, and this, these two ladies that came yesterday and how much time they prayed and like... I don't want to measure prayer based on minutes and hours or prayer meetings attended. But here's how I want to measure prayer. Answers. I think that's the way to measure prayer. Answers. Because <laughs> really, frankly, if, if you pray for me for 10 years and don't get an answer, you can stop praying. <laughs> I got this. I can do impotence on my own. I can do weakness on my own. You know what I mean? I would rather you pray for me for two minutes and get results than ten years with nothing. Does that make sense? So let's not pat ourselves on the back. Oh, I prayed for two hours. What happened with that, though? Was there, was there an answer? Was there a result? Did something change? So I don't want you to go home and say, Ah, oh, Pastor Jim wants me to pray longer. No, I don't really care how long you pray. I want answers. Okay, that sounds like bossy. I understand that. That's, I hope you understand what I'm saying. I want to see breakthrough in prayer. I want to see us pray right, not long. If it takes us long, it's probably because we had to get our hearts right, and it took that long to get there. I want to see us praying well. Uh, that's the priority. So, here's what I'm calling us to. Number one, we might need to actually repent of prayerlessness. Um... I think it's, you know, that's something between you and Jesus, whether prayerlessness is an issue in your life. It has been an issue in my life at times. There is always a correlation between prayerlessness and workaholism in my life. Because I realize a lot of stuff needs to get done, but I'm not ready to trust God to do it, so I try to take matters into my own hand. 
Uh, one of our church friends, Fred Hartley, says this, Most Christians view prayerlessness as a weakness, not a sin, which is why they try to just do things better rather than repent. Prayerlessness is not just a weakness that you make a New Year's resolution to do better with. It's a sin. And until you treat it as a sin, you will not repent of it. Um, trying harder probably won't work for more than a week. It might work for a week, but this isn't the kind of thing that you make a resolution about. It's the kind of thing you repent of. I, I found that when I identify whether something is a weakness or a sin, and if I'm able to identify things correctly, repenting of sin is the only way to get free. So if prayerlessness is something that God has convicted you of, don't just say, I'll try harder, Lord. Repent. You actually have to change your thinking, which is what repentance means. Change the way you think about this. You don't have to beat yourself, you do not have to beat yourself up over it, because there is no moral value in that. You just want to change the way you think about it. If it's not repentance, then here's the second thing I want to ask you to do, is receive the spirit of prayer. Here's what I mean by that. I realize that sounds very churchy. Uh, in Romans 8, it says, we don't even know how to pray the way we should, but the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness by interceding for us with groans that words cannot express. So, we don't even know how to pray, but God gives us the Holy Spirit to teach us how to pray, which goes back to what the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. So, you might need to repent you might need to receive, you might need to do both, but you do not have to do this on your own, and you don't have to keep doing what you've always been doing. Here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to have the worship team come up. They're going to lead us in a song that's called Our Father. It's very tightly based on the Lord's Prayer, so this will be familiar. I'm going to open up the entire altar up front while we sing. If you want to come up and repent of prayerlessness, and just kind of like take a step and repent of that, come on up. If you uh, want to receive this, okay, receive the spirit of prayer means ask the Holy Spirit to empower your prayer life. Come on up and spend some time up front. Uh, we do not have elders or a prayer team that's going to come pray with you. This is between you and Jesus for you to do on your own, but you're welcome to come on up and pray with us. And go ahead, Cindy. Sure. That's a great question. Okay, so Cindy's question is, define prayerlessness a little bit. I'm going to break it down into two parts. I think the easier to understand is just, I don't pray. <laughs> just, I'll go a day or two or three or a week, and I haven't prayed. Okay, so that's a very base level understanding of prayerlessness. I think probably the more significant issue is what I'm talking about when I say, what is my attitude toward prayer? If my attitude toward prayer is, it doesn't work, it's dry, it's boring, it doesn't get results, that's actually the soil that prayerlessness grows in. Does that answer? Well, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what I mean when I say prayerlessness. So, would you guys mind standing with me? The disciples first asked you, Lord, teach us to pray. They wanted to know how to pray. They were caught up in your prayer life when they witnessed it. They saw that, and they wanted to learn how to pray. 
So Jesus, I pray on behalf of our congregation, Lord, teach us to pray. Help us to repent of prayerlessness where that exists. Help us to be empowered by the praying spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, so that we're not working this up in our own strength. Meet us, Lord, as we sing. Meet us at this altar. And I ask that in your name, Jesus.